So, um, Kathy, um, asked you questions. And I'm going to say a couple things about Daniel, and then we're just going to put some questions up on the board because in all honesty, at the end of the day, this chapter for me was all about questions. Okay. Um, there's a lot that is unknown in this chapter. There's no reference to time. Okay? I mean, Daniel chapter 2, golden statue, feet of clay. Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar goes out and builds a golden statue. Okay? Was it the next day? Most folks think it was probably about 20 years later. Was Nebuchadnezzar thumbing his nose at God? Was he fighting against God? Or was he taking, hear this very carefully, taking that vision as a challenge that he needed to store up his kingdom so it wouldn't become fetus clay? I don't agree with that. But at the same time, I know all too often in my own head, God will say something and I'll go, oh, well then what you're telling me is I should go and do this, which is really against what he's telling me. I'm just trying to compromise it to get what I want. Anybody ever done that? Don't touch. Okay, I won't, but I'll go around this way and try and come in from this side. No, what I said is don't go there. Well, then I'll try and get it the way, this way. Nebuchadnezzar talks about at the end of chapter 2 Daniel you're most high God he knows everything and then we have him in chapter 3 building a statue what God's able to save how many times have I had yay God and the next day gone God where are you are you really there is, is this purely a, a story about pride and wanting to be superior? Or is this just Nebuchadnezzar still on his journey with God? Now, I have a tendency to want to say it's much more about his pride and power. Okay? But at the same time, I want to sit back in this chapter and begin to go, God, where are you speaking to me in this chapter? Which is what all of Kathy's questions were all about. Because for each one of us, it's going to be in a different place. Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue. Most people don't think it's a statue of him because throughout the history of Babylon, kings don't build statues to themselves. Okay. I don't know that answer. Could have been. Especially coming off of Daniel 2. But at the same time, in a sense, I think one of the things that Kim Keller points out in his sermons on this passage is that what he's really doing here is he's building this statue. And he's not saying to everybody, this is the only God you shall worship. You may only bow down to this statue. That's not what he's saying. Okay? It's a very pluralistic society. That day and age, there were lots of gods. Okay, that people worshipped. You want a kid, you worship one God. You want good crops, you worship another God. 
You want rain, you worship another god. They're different gods. Okay, it's a polytheistic society. This is just one amongst many. Okay. You know, we live in a polytheistic society. We worship many gods. They're not made of statues. Okay. But nevertheless, sometimes our worship of celebrities or of, as Debbie Alley pointed out today, Super Bowl trophies. She was talking about how she watched the end of the Super Bowl and how they worshipped that trophy almost as it was brought down. Okay. We worship our success. We worship the things we build. In some instances, we worship our kids and our families. Okay. We worship ourselves. Somebody once said, whatever I think the most about, whatever I think I can't live without, is that which I worship. Okay. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't saying you can't worship Jehovah. It's just that I want you to worship him plus. I want you to bow down to this idol. See? In a sense, what he's really doing is he's building this idol in hopes of unifying his country so that there's one thing that we're all in together with. Okay. How many times do we have that sense of wanting to create some type of unity where we're all in it together because unity creates strength? And so he builds this, this statue and all this pomp and all this circumstance. Everybody's out on the plane and they're blowing horns. It is huge. I mean, it is, I mean, I don't know, the most patriotic possible thing you could possibly imagine. I mean, all of the fanfare. I mean, we all get caught up in fanfare, don't we? You know, all the fanfare. And then everybody hits the ground. Now, here goes. You know, you go to a baseball game. I don't care, football game, you know. Actually, I went to, um, so you all know that I'm a um, UCLA fan, kind of. I remember going to an. SC game when SC, I think S I don't know who they play I think they were playing UCLA or something but I just remember being in the Coliseum and everybody's standing up and yelling and I'm sitting <laughs> it was not fun I mean what happens to me something happens and everybody just kind of I, you just stand up just to see don't you I mean you get wrapped up into the crowd. How easy it would have been to hit the deck with everybody else. Oftentimes, we mechanically respond to things just because that's what's going on without even thinking. And everybody hits the deck. Now, here's the thing about this story, okay? There's a lot of things we don't know. Where were Meshach and Shadrach and Abednego? 
Were they out in the middle of the plain with everybody bowing down around them? Were, were they kind of off to the side, kind of hoping not to be noticed? Okay. You know, it's not like they were immediately arrested and thrown into a furnace. Okay, it's, it's these other folks that they work with who were jealous of them going to the king and saying, hey king, guess what? These guys, these three, and there were more than them, but they only pointed out those three. I mean, at first it says all the Jews, and then it goes down to these three. There's more than them. But the issue is these guys are jealous of, of them, and they want to get rid of them. Okay. Here goes. If you are a Christian, you will get persecuted. Because at some level, at some point, someday, you're not going to go along with the crowd and people aren't going to like it and they are going to point a finger at you. It's just a given. And I think often enough, we don't talk about it. Jesus says, they hated me. They're going to hate you too. And I think sometimes we need to hear that loud and clear. But where were these guys? Were they on the side? Were they in the middle? What's it like to be in the middle with everybody bowing down around you? Can you stand? I mean, or are you so caught up in what's going on around you that you hit the deck too? Oops, I didn't mean to. Bounce up. Okay. You know, I, I, I kind of almost... As I was driving to work and I was listening to somebody talk about this chapter, I, I kind of pictured myself, you know, I could see myself out in the middle going, oh, everybody's going down. Okay, I'm not going to bow down. I'll just kind of get low. <laughs> How low can I get? Okay. You know, one of the questions was, well, were they hiding in their houses? I, I don't think they were doing that. That is the one thing I don't think they were doing. Because I think over and over again, what you hear is that they are in the middle of this culture. All of Daniel is about how to live in the middle of exile. Okay. In fact, in Jeremiah, when you read Jeremiah, he basically says, if you want to hide in Jerusalem, it's not going to go well with you. Go out, go to exile. Okay. See, folks, we live in exile. We're not called to hide. We're called to go out into the midst of of this culture that we're in, but we're called to go out standing, not mechanically following. We're called to go out living differently. But let me tell you something else that we're not doing, and, and, and I think we got to really watch this at a certain level. Okay, because there are times to protest, but there are also times that we need to watch how we protest. Okay. They were not out carrying plaques, marching and saying this is horrible and Nebuchadnezzar's a bad guy. Okay. Um, Tim Keller in his sermon on this passage does an awful lot about talking about pluralism and intolerance. And he says we live in a world today where we are called to be tolerant of each other. And he says that Christianity is seen as being in tolerant 
And he says, in one sense, we are. And in another sense, we are more tolerant than those who are accusing us of being intolerant. Let me unpack that just for you for a minute. I am called to be tolerant of people I disagree with in our culture today. By saying that, I'm called to say that what they believe is correct. That they have a right to their belief and that it's all correct, and I'm not supposed to say that they're wrong. Okay? And when I say I have a true belief versus their belief that they're wrong, then I'm accused of being intolerant. Okay? But at a certain point, they're being intolerant of me. Right? Okay? So, this issue of tolerance versus intolerance gets to be really tricky. And so Tim Keller says, you know, in a sense, that's unfair to call us intolerant because by doing that, you're being intolerant. But this is where he says we're more tolerant. He says what we're called to do is to love them and to put up with them in their unbelief. In fact, Keller says, what did Jesus do? He went to the cross for the very people who said he was wrong. See, He died for the very people who were putting him on the cross. And so at one level, we're called to be more tolerant than anybody else because we're called to be more loving and die for the very people that we disagree with. See, one of the things that gets to be absolutely fascinating as you go down through this passage or as you look at Daniel 1 is you see these individuals who are incredibly humble. They are incredibly gracious. Okay. In fact, one of the commentaries I was reading you know, kind of draws this distinction between these, you know, astrologers who go to Nebuchadnezzar and say, oh, king, live forever. These guys are bowing down to you. I mean, it is, the wording on it is like as thick as you can possibly get, right? You know, let me kiss up. When you get down to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, O King Nebuchadnezzar, they are gracious. They are polite. They are honoring. But there's not that sense of, you know, kiss at type of stuff. You know? They're just in their courage being very polite and very loving and very gracious. And so there is, in a sense, a challenge that if we're to learn how to live in exile... Part of what we're called to do is learn how to stand up and at the same time be gracious and be loving. We're called to stand up so that people see 
that maybe we're different. And when they persecute us and throw us into the furnace, what they see is not our anger and our bullying, but that they see our God who went to a cross, who's with us, walking us through. Tim Keller in that same sermon says that when we love somebody, we suffer. He told a story about the fact that when his, they had their first kid, him and his wife were driving around, and his wife looked at him and, and said, never again will I be happy. Hello? First kid's in the back seat. We're out for a Sunday drive. What do you mean never again will you be happy? And he came to understand that what she was saying is that because I now love this child so much, I only care about that child's happiness. And when that child's not happy, I'm not going to be happy. In fact, I'm not going to be happy until that child's really happy the way I think they should be happy, and that's probably never going to happen. So, you know, the ongoing thing. He goes, just, goes, basically, folks, you're going to be unhappy. If you love, you're going to be unhappy. Oh, that's fun. If you're a Christian, you're going to be in a furnace. That's fun. But I think sometimes... It, we have this expectation. And in a sense, this is one of our idols that we're supposed to be happy. That we're supposed to be successful. That everything's going to go our way. That it's all about us. And what these three individuals teach us is that it wasn't about them. It was about their God. Nebuchadnezzar our God is able. But if he's not, if he chooses not to save us, Nebuchadnezzar, it's not about us. It's about him. And we will continue to live in obedience to him. Even if it means the end of our lives. Even if it means a fiery furnace. And when, when I read that, I think, oh, you know, okay. I mean, their God parted the Red Sea. How many years ago was that? Their God caused the walls of Jericho to come down. How many years ago was that? 
Their God had not saved Jerusalem. Their God had allowed them to be taken as captives when they were children and put into Nebuchadnezzar's court where they've been living for the last 20 plus years. How many prayers do you think they've been praying that day? Lord, please intervene. Where's Daniel? Get Daniel on the scene. Do something, Lord. Have, these, have Nebuchadnezzar see that these guys, these astrologers really are only out for themselves. It's not about us, it's about them. Lord, keep us from the fire. How many prayers do you think they prayed that went unanswered that day? I mean, I guess they were praying a lot. I would be. And God chose to answer those prayers, how? By meeting him in the furnace. See? You know? They chose no matter what, that even if they didn't see God working, even if they didn't understand what God was going to do, they were going to hang on to God and they were going to be obedient to God and they were going to trust God. And the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only, and you shouldn't bow down to any idols. They were not going to break those laws. It's not really a God. It's just a statue. I mean, it's just wood. It's just gold. So what? Big dip. It's not a big deal. Seemingly unimportant. I'm not going to break the law. How many times do we compromise the Ten Commandments? I mean, just... How many of you covet? I mean, that's one of them. One of the people I was listening to said, you know, at, at a certain point, these guys could not have gotten here to standing before the king with the courage to say, no matter what, king, I don't care if it's a furnace or not, we're not getting thrown in, if they had not been practicing ahead of time. See, if they had not been willing to be faithful in the little things like the dietary laws back in Daniel 1, if they hadn't practiced back there, they probably wouldn't have had the courage now to stand up. I mean, how many times have I said that? Oh, you know, when it really comes, push comes to shove, I'll stand up. I'm not faithful in the little things now. How can I stand up when it really involves fire? Okay. Where am I compromising with God? God says, forgive. Where am I not forgiving? God says to love my enemy. Where am I not loving my enemy? God says to turn the other cheek. Where am I fighting back rather than trusting God to fight for me? This is not passivity. This is harder than passivity. And it's also sometimes harder than fighting because fighting just is pure emotion sometimes. 
Standing up with courage and not giving in and speaking out and yet being gracious and being loving in the midst of such anger and such hate is not easy. Going into a furnace is not easy. But they had their eyes so set on God that nothing else mattered. Where are my eyes? Are my eyes fixed on my king and on his kingdom? Or are they fixed on me and this kingdom? See? And there's a challenge there. Um, one of the other things about the fire that I, is, is fun, um, at, at one level, what these guys do have going for them is they do have the history of God. Um, Deuteronomy basically says that God took them out of the fiery furnace of Egypt. Okay, So this idea of being saved out of the furnace is not new. God called Egypt a fiery furnace. You start reading the New Testament and, and you come up against fire too. There are two things that fire ends up being a symbol of in, in, in Scripture. One is, the, is judgment. We get into Revelation, you know, it's the judgment fires. Okay. Fire is a symbol of death and of judgment. And you see that with these soldiers who are throwing and in fact, I'm going to say the same fire. You know, you throw the soldiers, throw these guys in, and they die. We will all go through the fire at some point in our life. Okay? And it is a fire of judgment. Okay. But here's the deal. Jesus is in the midst of that fire and if we find him and hold on to him in the midst of that fire rather than it being a fire of judgment it becomes a refining fire those guys are bound with their turbans and their Robes and everything else, and these ropes are bound so they can basically, you know, you can imagine their, you know, feet are tied together and all the, you know, hands so they can easily be thrown in to a fire. And it says that in the fire they were unbound. God takes us through refining fire so the very things in our life that bind us can be released so that we can walk unbound and in the freedom that he created us to live in, in the joy that he created us to live in. I sometimes live a life still bound because I'm unwilling to go through the fire where Jesus can refine me. 
I mean, just to give you a, maybe another illustration, I mean, at, at a certain level, I mean, if, um, if you've ever gone into counseling, you know, somebody made a comment that they were in counseling the other day, and, and they said, you know, that their counselor basically looked at them and said, you know, well, we started up here, now we're in the basement. Okay? If you go through counseling, sometimes you walk out of an office, a counseling office, and you feel worse than when you walked in. And you go, I thought you were supposed to make me feel better. And it's because what's going on? All those things that have been binding you are being brought to the surface so you can deal with them. You know? Fires aren't bad. Jesus takes us into the fires so that he can show us the things that are keeping us from living in the freedom that he has for us. I mean, there's a proverb, iron sharpens iron, right? You know, so he brings us into tough relationships. Why? So we can be sharp. But not me, man. I hang back. I don't want a tough relationship. No, thank you. I don't want a fire. We are fire avoidance people. And God's saying, I want to refine you. Will you trust me? Will you meet me in the fire? But here's the fun thing also that I want to say to you, and some of you need to hear this. When they get out of the fire, do you catch that bit? There's not even any smell of smoke. Some of you have things in your life that you think make you smell. Oh, yeah, you've asked for forgiveness and intellectually you know that you've been forgiven type of thing, but you still sense that it still tints you in some way. It makes you unacceptable in some way. Hear this loud and clear. The cross of Jesus Christ unbind you, unbound you, and makes it so that you no longer smell. You are completely forgiven. You are completely made new. It's been burned away. There's nothing left of it. Let it go. Probably one of the best things that I heard about this passage was that basically we're called to live chapter or verse 18. That's where we're called to live. God, even if you don't, I'm going to trust you. You see, in a real sense, the fire is yet to come. The fire is the return of Jesus. See? And, and we haven't hit that place yet. And as such, we stand on the edge of that furnace every day with the decision of will I continue to worship and keep my eyes fixed on Jesus and be obedient to Jesus and trust in his sovereignty and the fact that he is in ultimate control even when I don't see him. Living not for this kingdom, 
but living for his kingdom. Okay. Knowing that I will go through the fires of his return and live with him forever in his new kingdom. Until Jesus returns, we are on the edge of a furnace every single day. And every single day, we are left with the question of will I trust in his sovereignty while being obedient to him, knowing that part of trusting in his power And his sovereignty is that I trust when he doesn't do things the way I want him to do it. Because I know that he has a plan and that he is ultimately in control. And it's all about him. It's not about me. Um, One of the things that's really kind of cool about Wednesdays is that Carolyn sits back there with this projector and every now and then hits us slide and every now and then doesn't hit slides and at the end of the day she will send all of these slides out to you okay but could I have the first slide there um basically um Wayne last week kind of talked a little bit about um how sometimes structures are put together in in scriptures and how everything kind of points to a center and there's a great name for that of which completely goes over my head and Caitlin could tell you because she's better at remembering things like this than I am like what's that called again I can't hear you either because I don't have a hearing aid on. So say it really loud so everybody can hear what it is because I can't. So, so here you go. A, B, C, C, B, A. Okay, everything goes to the center and then comes out of the center. And what's the center? This whole passage is about these three individuals confessing their faith, holding on to their faith. No matter what, being obedient to their God. Okay. Let's go to the next slide. Um, basically, real fast, um, overall, Daniel, over and over and over again, in spite of appearances, God is in complete control. Lord, where are you? Jerusalem's fallen. Lord, where are you? I'm standing at the edge of a fire. Lord, where are you? These guys are purposely trying to catch me so I can get thrown into a fire so they can have power rather than me have power. It's all jealousy, God. It's not about you. It's not about anything. It's just about them. In all appearances, God is still in control. Fear not, I'm going to meet you in the fire. People see Jesus when they live in the truth of Jesus. When we live in the truth of Jesus. I don't have to hit them over the head. I don't have to legislate. All I have to do is live it out. The full glory of God's rescue has not happened yet. Vindication is still to come. We live at verse 18, so stand firm. Trust God with humility, gentleness, courage, respect, and obedience. Can I have the next slide? So, in a sense, the whole passage basically is asking the question, who's really in control, Nebuchadnezzar or God? Is it the power and pride of Nebuchadnezzar or obedience and trust? Our society is obsessed with power. But here the moral nature of God is more important than his might. Die for the right versus might. Will I be obedient or will I compromise? 
It is easy to die when I think God's going to do something miraculous. It is pretty hard to be obedient and die when the miracle is yet to occur at his second coming. Society is obsessed with results, but here the true reward is not found in their rewards, but knowing the presence of God in the midst of the heat of struggle. One of the things I will say about this also, um, you know, one of the things about us is that we want, one of the things that Nebuchadnezzar is doing is he, wanna, he wants to make something that's lasting. He wants to be significant. He wants all generations to be able to look at that idol and go, he built that. There's this temptation in all of us to be significant, to build something that will last. And at the end of the day, Jesus says, God is the one who establishes kingdoms and that which lasts. It's his kingdom and his kingdom alone that will last. Oftentimes, I try and build things that really won't last, and then I try and hold on to them and say, but God, they're for you, they're for you, they're for you. And God's going, it's just me and my kingdom, and I'm the one who builds it. Let's go to the next slide. Um, Paul Taylor says that a person's God is the thing or person that one is most concerned about, thinks the most about, or affects their life the most. Bill Bright, basically, on this passage, says, who's on the throne of your life? Is it you or is it God? What does it mean to keep the main thing the main thing? If you were in church on Sunday, this goes over and over again. And where do we find meaning in life that often is our idol? Let's go to the next slide real fast. Uh, let's go to the next one. So... Um, Two major questions. The next two slides, and we'll send these to you, are just filled with questions, and I would encourage you, just take them out and read them. And put them prayerfully before God. But these two I would throw out to you. Um, John Ortberg actually preaches two sermons on this passage. The end of his first sermon is a sermon how God is able, and he tells stories about all those great stories about how God is able and he ends with this. Where do I need to say that though he slay me, yet will I trust him? For my God is able. So I will not bat down. Instead, I will trust God. Where have you been holding back full devotion? God is able. Let him provide. Trust him. Obey him. Where is God calling you? Take a chance. Step out. I'm able. Um, though he slay me is, is Job, Esther, if I perish, I perish. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, take the cup from me, but whatever. Over and over and over again, that's the question that people are brought to. Okay. Where's God maybe calling you to take a step and he's saying, you know what, don't worry, I'm able. Yeah, but God, if I do that, then what if? And God's going, I'm able I can, I can provide. 
I got this. I'm able. Where are you called to take that step right now in your life? What's that look like? Maybe it's to go befriend somebody. Maybe it's to, I don't know, quit a job, do something. I don't know what it is. Where's God saying, trust me here. I'm able. And the next question is, where do I need to hear God say, fear not, I'll meet you in the furnace. And where you're called to say, okay, I'm scared, but I'll meet you there. What furnace are you being called into right now that you're trying to avoid? Some of the other questions, I don't know. What idols do you bow down to? What laws of God are you trying to compromise? Or pretend don't exist? How do you face persecution? Do you serve God for himself, for what you get out of God? You hear this. Tim said it on Sunday morning. We're not called to be perfect. I'm not called to get it right all the time. I'm just called to be on the road. I don't go to heaven by keeping the law. But I show where my eyes are fixed by keeping the law. Where have I been compromising? Where have I been bowing down? Where do I need to stand up? Where do I need to fear not? Where do I need to trust that God is able? Let me pray. Lord, each of us are in a different place here. Some of us are Nebuchadnezzar's, some of us are the three friends. Lord, we'll even confess some of us are out there hoping somebody else falls so that we can get ahead. Lord, we're avoiding flames and fires. We've made life about us. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that we can trust even when we don't see. And Lord, this day, may people see you in us as we lovingly die the way you did. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good luncheon.